ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Did 2020's market crash shed a new light on how you view your portfolio risk? CDC, the Victory Shares U.S. Equity Income Enhanced Volatility Weighted ETF, helps investors curb emotional decision-making by investing in large-cap dividend stocks with the ability to systematically shift to cash during times of market duress in a tax-efficient manner. Visit vcm.com CDC today to learn more. Carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses before investing. To obtain a prospectus or summary prospectus containing this and other important information, visit vcm.com prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. This ETF is distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, I am live from Exchange and ETF Experience, the ETF conference of the year. It's being held in Miami Beach, Florida. And I've got to say, it's been an absolutely fantastic last few days. Just so great being back in person with everyone, given that we've had this conference hiatus over the past two years. It's been a long stretch here with a pandemic, but we're back in person. The sun is shining. We have a beautiful venue. And we have a live podcast audience, which uh, is actually a first for ETF Prime. So I've been doing this podcast for over 10 years now, which is hard to believe. Never had a live audience. So I'm very excited. And on this week's podcast, we're going to offer some of our biggest takeaways from the event. Some of the key highlights, things that caught our attention. And as we get into these, I'm sure we're going to veer down a number of uh, unrelated ETF paths, particularly given my guests so joining me are none other than Dave Nottig, financial futurist at ETF Trends and ETF Database, and Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. And actually later, I'll be joined by another very special guest, so stick around for that. But gentlemen, welcome to this uh, very live edition of ETF Prime. Thanks, Nate. It's great to be with you in, in Florida, of all places, in front of an audience. And it feels like it's been two years since I've seen anybody else outside of my house. So it's even better to be with friends. I had forgotten how many people work in this industry. I actually thought it was just like the 14 people I'd seen on Zoom. It's amazing. <laughs> I feel like I've run into so many people over the past you know, 48 hours that I felt like I saw yesterday, but it's been two years. It's yep. been three years. You know, There has been this hiatus. And it's so great to have everybody back together. Just the energy in the room. 
Uh, and I think everybody just it was ready to get back to an event like this. Well, and the other thing is the ETF industry has exploded in the last two years while we've all been locked in a box staring at a camera. And so there are a hundred people here that I only know in this industry from being on screens with them. And to see them all in person has been fantastic and also slightly disturbing because they're all very tall and very good looking. And it's, a <laughs> little, it's a little bit overwhelming. Well, there's just to, just to recap, I know, I know we're going to have a special guest to talk through this, but there's over 2,000 people who registered. We've got a wide range of asset managers that are here. We've got uh, amazing advisors that have been in the room and been active in sessions that Dave and I have been both a part of on stage and or emceeing. And the energy, especially from the advisor community, to get to know some of these products and understand that and the fact that we were able to help bring them together within the industry is, is something that I'm proud of being a part of. Yeah, and that's really what it's all about, right? It's bringing together all the constituents in the industry and having advisors have an opportunity to learn about products, meet people in person. That's really what this is all about. Okay, so on that note, we are going to get into some of our biggest takeaways from the event, but I thought I'd start by asking each of you, just give us the overall state of the ETF industry right now. So we're around $7 trillion in assets under management about 200 billion in inflows this year, which I find remarkable just given the market environment. Uh, there's clearly a lot of momentum within the industry. I think we can feel that just walking around just to what we were speaking to. Where does the industry stand right now? And, and Todd, I'll start with you. Yeah, I, I think the industry is extremely healthy. Um, as you're right, we, we had a record inflows of over 900 billion in 2021. We might Again, we might break that record. I don't know that it's – we'll see how the stock market handles uh, and recovers. We're in earnings season right now. We'll see what happens if the bond market can stabilize. Uh, but this is all happening, the $200 billion, on the backs of, in part, core equity primarily and commodity ETFs. So if we get other parts of the ecosystem humming the way that we saw – in more traditional normal times, and I don't know if we're going to, then we could have that happen again. We've had, we're on pace to have another record in terms of new launches of ETFs. We're seeing that uh, here, and there's been firms that have actually launched products. Uh, Fidelity launched some products. Uh, again, I'm on my phone trying to keep up with everything <laughs> on it, and a press release coming out of, of new products is wonderful. That's exactly what it is. So I would say the industry is extremely healthy and has room to grow even more as people get more comfortable as advisors that are more getting used to ETFs, there's institutions that are getting more used to it, and everything else has been chugging along. I, I wouldn't even say it's a getting used to it. I feel like, you know, even three or four years ago, you'd come to this conference and a lot of the discussion was, hey, here's why ETFs can solve problems for you, where they fit in portfolios. I mean, we, we used to do a lot more work on explaining just how they work. I feel like that's that's in the past. Where we are now is we're talking about macroeconomics and inflation and the Fed and the role of bonds and portfolios and crypto, and it's just a given that the ETF is the vehicle that's going to be providing whatever solutions the industry can come up with. And it's not just about new products. A lot of it's how do these exogenous market factors affect the things you're already in that are ETFs, right? So ETFs are almost now just sort of the default in a lot of these conversations. I wasn't expecting it to be that clear to me when I was talking to advisors face-to-face -face and shaking hands that there was no question about, golly, I should look into these ETF things anymore. It was just a question of which, how, and when. That may be the biggest takeaway that I had, and I actually tweeted this out yesterday, that it feels like ETFs are now fully mainstream. To your point, I feel like 
at past events, there was a lot of talking about the benefits of the ETF wrapper and why you want to use the vehicle. Now the focus is really on what that wrapper can deliver and the solutions that it can solve. I feel like the conference, even though this is an ETF conference, it feels much more like an asset management conference. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's broader. And I think that was I think that was intentional. Again, obviously, Dave and I work for the company that is co-producing the conference, but that was intentional was, one, we were trying to meet advisors where they were, and the, Dave and I have been two ships somewhat passing in the night <laughs> on two different ends of the conference, but the one time we were on stage together was to talk about what survey data that we got from advisors, what are they concerned about, what are they interested in, where is the money going, and then how should advisors be putting money to work and the feedback that I got was very strong on that of that was the kind of content instead of us riffing off new ETFs, which is something that we've done on stage before. And this was meeting advisors where they are. They already want to get to know these products and be able to have looking for solutions to it. And so that was a blast with you. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, you know, there's a bit of a bet when you put on a conference that, you know, you have to set the agenda for these things, you know, long before the conference actually is going up. And so I think there was a bit of a bet that we were going to talk about the core ideas here and not products and not structures and not, you know, the ins and outs of where they fit in your tax planning and all of that. No, those things still got discussed, but I think there was a bit of a bet made on the content side that let's just have the real conversations advisors will understand the ETF context. And I think that's great. I mean, honestly, all the sessions I've been in, I think I've heard three tickers. And I think that's a great thing. Okay. So speaking of all the sessions that we've all attended over the past three days, we're sitting here later in the afternoon on day three of the conference. What I'd like to do is go through some of my biggest takeaways from the event. And I'd love to just get your reaction. And I should offer the caveat, we literally did zero prep on this. <laughs> So I, I sent Dave and Todd an email a couple of hours ago with some thoughts. That's it. So we're just going to go. An, I saw the email come <laughs> into my inbox, and I had all intentions of reading it in its entirety, <laughs> and here we are. So, so what we'll do, we'll go through some of my key takeaways, and I'll certainly leave some time because if there's something that I missed here, I, I'd like to, to get your thoughts on that as well. So I, I think we have to start with this talk of the FINRA proposal on more complex ETFs sure. and mutual funds. So. This has definitely caused a buzz at this conference, and I would say not in a good way. And my understanding is this proposal would require brokerages to effectively test investors before allowing them to access, quote unquote, complex ETFs. And Dave, I know you have already publicly commented on this. What I'd love to have you do, just explain a little more in detail what this proposal entails and then explain why the industry is concerned. So the proposal, which is coming from FINRA, and FINRA largely regulates the interactions between financial institutions and the end investor. That's really their job. So broker-dealers, to some extent advisors, there's a connection there. Um, so it's not quite like the SEC. They're, they're more of an, a self-regulatory organization. And what they put out was essentially a request for comments, although that's a bit of a ruse. Requests for comments are generally the first step of a reg pro process. Um, and the request for comments suggests two things, bucketing, uh, which would be what is considered a complex product, and they, want, they propose everything from target date funds to any product that uses any leverage or any derivatives, effectively anything that's not the most boring vanilla beta exposure you can imagine could probably be considered in scope as they've asked the questions. So there's the bucketing component. And then once we could maybe come up with a, a decision about what is complex, there's a how do you gate people 
into those or out of those products. And the proposals they've suggested include all the way down to testing self-directed investors' knowledge of the risks and parameters of how these products work. That's the part I think that is the most disturbing for most of the industry participants because that represents a cataclysmic shift in the regulatory environment should such a thing come to pass. There is currently no system in the United States where the self-directed retail investor has to pass a test to do anything. You don't have to do it to buy real estate. There are, there are gates like accredited or qualified investor levels, which are just about attesting that you have certain amounts of assets. But even then, they don't test that. They don't go look at your bank account to say you're an accredited investor. You simply have to acknowledge that you are an accredited investor. So this would be a, a truly unprecedented, and that's an overused word, but in this case, this would be an unprecedented shift in how financial interactions are regulated in this country. I think part of the reason people are a little concerned is because this is coming from FINRA, it's a very different process, to say, than when the SEC decided to get serious about the ETF rule, right, which was lots of back and forth, lots of proposals, lots of put this in, take this out. It was really a collaborative process, and I think it's one of the great victories of the ETF industry was getting 6C11 passed the way it got passed. In this case, FINRA really could take the comments, which are due by May 9th, go out and get those comments in, um, and then turn around and just issue new rules. There's, there's no secondary process here. Now, I think it's fair to think maybe we're being a little hyperbolic here, but we only have a couple weeks, and there's no gate to keep FINRA from just flipping a switch and changing the whole regime. What do you think the driver is here? Well, why did this proposal come up to begin with? So there's a very clear shift in financial regulation in this country, I believe being driven largely by Gensler and the SEC, towards what, and, and I hate this phrase, but I don't know a better word for it, towards sort of nanny state investing control, right, where they're concerned about individual investor access to things they don't understand, a legit concern and legitimately part of the SEC's mandate. Um, but we, if you look at what they're talking about in crypto, you look at what they're talking about in terms of, uh, you know, disclosures, even the stuff about Elon Musk that they keep chasing, there's a real, you know, sort of some worry control aspect to what we've seen out of Washington. This feels very much like it has the SEC's thumb on it, but it's in the wrong place. If we're going to talk about bucketing products, that should be done at the SEC. Yeah, I, the two things that jump out to me and that I've heard as well from actually both advisors and the industry since since I've gotten to know about this, and this is moving quickly. This is, it was out there for a little bit, but it's now starting to be discovered, is it feels as if advisors won't have to pass the same test. It's just going to be retail investors. So you are an advisor. Many of the people who are either in this room or at the conference are advisors. There are wonderful advisors that are out there. But part of what has made the ETF industry grow is that self-directed investors can get exposure to the products they want. They, need, they should learn as much as they can about it. But this feels like this is pushing those investors to work with an advisor who may or may not know enough about these products and may might even know less than, than the end investor, but want to buy it. And now the advisor is, is, check, is not even checking the box and doing it. And then I agree with Dave, the second part of what gets, what gets the fact that there is a bucket and what makes it into the bucket. There are products that are likely to be lumped into this that are actually much less risky than the things that are going to be considered oh, yeah. uncomplicated behind it. So and I'm not calling on any individual provider, but there's a number of defined outcome or buffer ETFs 
which will reduce the downside, you know, will actually have downside protection, will reduce the losses that an investor could incur in a volatile marketplace. That feels like those products are going to get lumped into oh, it. For sure. But the equal weight biotechnology ETF, which is more likely to go down in a sell-off, and it's a very good product, but it's more likely to go down in a sell-off, is not. And I don't know that that's... Or, that, or just OTC bulletin board stocks. Right. Right. I mean, and all of these things are would not be considered because this is only talking about packaged product, right? Talking okay, about okay let me play devil's advocate just a little bit here. So I think that we all have seen some investors misuse things like leveraged sure. ETFs, or they don't understand Contango and futures-based products. Uh, option strategies, if you think about, if you're an investor and you go, say, to Schwab, and you want to invest on margin, you have to get approved for that. If you want to invest in futures contracts, you have to get approved for that. If you want to invest in options, you have to get approved for that. Right. So should more be done here? I, so, so maybe this proposal isn't the right way to go about it, but should something else be done to help protect retail investors on these products? I'll just give you my opinion. It's not like an official stance, but I think it's reasonable for us to ask these questions. I think it's reasonable to think about some products being more complex than others and requiring different levels of at least attestation and disclosure. That's the, that's the environment in Europe right now, right? There's, there's USITs and then there's the alt USITs. And if you're going to invest in leveraged products and commodities and things like that, you have a different regulatory regime, a different disclosure requirement. So I would be very much behind a, a thoughtful analysis of what a product is claiming to do at the prospectus level and an attestation from an investor that they've read the prospectus or understand the prospectus. Right now, we're sort of in a post-disclosure environment. I think it's legitimate to say with some of these products, you may want to actually get somebody to say, yes, I understand I am buying a levered product. Yes, I understand this defined outcome product uses options and I should understand how options work before I buy it. That's a huge difference from that and saying, and you here's the standardized test that some bureaucrat is going to write that if you check the right boxes on your 10 questions, you get to do it. Your example of options is great, except you don't take a test to trade options. You attest that you know what you're doing. And yeah, the, I think that's an acceptable regime. It feels like the I, am I a robot kind of thing that's there and you got to find yeah. the different traffic it's lights. Out of there. <laughs> and I get it wrong sometimes because I can't even see that, that that traffic light is hiding in the corner here. People are going to fail these tests, and that's uh, okay. Then they have to. Then they'll end up learning from it. But it it feels like you should be able to. You should understand enough about what's going on. I'm just concerned that this is going to sweep a bunch of products in, and then ask questions later, as opposed to actually looking at what the various choices are. These are ETFs. Investors have the right to learn about those ETFs and make informed decisions. Hopefully they're doing it. I'm not sure that adding more disclosures to a prospectus that people aren't reading, but if they check the box and say that they've read it, then they've checked the box and said that well, they've read but, it. But there are other options here, right? right? So, again, to use the EU as an example, they have the, the key information document, the KID, right, which is the thing that you sort of get and actually can read. It has to be two pages. It has to contain certain kinds of disclosure. It's not just all legalese. It's actually a reasonably useful document. We don't even do that. So I, I think there are solutions here. Uh, but, but as we consider responding to this as an industry, or even if you're just an individual investor listening to this, FINRA wants to hear from you too, the jurisdictional issue to me is the biggest one. This should not be in the hands of FINRA. This should be, if we're going to change the environment, it should happen at a really structured regulatory level with some real thought and some real opportunity to bounce it back and forth with the stakeholders in the industry. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. 
iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. And I, I want to move on here, but Please. Is, is, the, is the primary concern that this is going to be putting up unnecessary gates for products, which would therefore not allow those products, those ETFs to get in the hands of investors? Is it that simple at the end of the day, that it doesn't give ETF issuers and their products a fair shot? to No, I think market? it's the opposite. I think it, it could potentially significantly limit the ability of a self-directed investor to access wealth. Right, wealth generated through asset growth, right, which we all know is a big part of the American dream, right? Home ownership, stock markets, 401ks. As worded, target date funds in your 401k might not pass this, right? So it's, it's a little bit, I think it's much more an individual liberty issue than a golly, isn't this bad for asset managers issue. Okay, we're going to move on to another regulatory topic, a topic that everyone knows is my favorite. You're wearing a shirt. Bitcoin ETF. <laughs> I, I have the shirt on and still no spot Bitcoin ETF, courtesy of Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas. Thank you for that. These are hot items on the, uh, on the black market here at the conference. Um, look, Dave, you gave a great presentation on Monday where you said that the U.S. is falling behind on crypto, right? Falling behind other countries. And... <laughs> It, it, clearly, you're not overly happy with regulators right now after talking about <laughs> yeah, the Yeah, pick a bad week, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I want to address this topic from that angle because listeners of this podcast know I've covered every other angle on Bitcoin ETFs. We don't need to rehash the whole debate, get into 33 Act versus 40 and uh, you know fraud and manipulation and all that. The question that I have is, why do you think other countries, if we look over north of the border to Canada, if we look over in Europe, Latin America, these countries all have spot crypto products trading. Why are they more comfortable allowing those products on the market? A few things. One is there's less of a, a truly grassroots self-directed investor environment, right? The, the U.S. has been ahead on that for a long time. There, you know, the platforms like Schwab and TD Ameritrade and Fidelity in, in the EU aren't as prevalent, right? So there are a lot more advised assets um, and I think that may be part of it. Um, I also think that there's just a, a seen opportunity. I mean, part of the EU experiment was about creating a block that could compete with the United States and can compete with China. Um, and so part of that is creating innovation-friendly regulatory regimes. Now, I know a lot of people would say what they've done on ESG is the opposite of that, but I, I think you can't look at those markets and say that they aren't at least trying to foster innovation and are willing to allow people to lose money if they make bad decisions, right? I think that's that's what it comes down to. How much should we be controlling this? I think a part of it is we've outsourced our social safety net to the markets, right? Most people's social safety net is going to be their 401k. Therefore, asset prices matter as a matter of national pride and security. So therefore, we're in this weird regulatory bubble where we lean on these markets for very important parts of our economy in the US in the way that other markets don't. But we have this sort of slightly backwardated 90-year-old regulatory regime. Todd, any thoughts? Uh, not on why other countries are, are having it available and not the United States, but it does feel as if the pendulum is starting to swing like it might be possible that something happens. And, and what might end up happening is that, you know, Grayscale, 
uh, who's being appropriately aggressive in trying to have the public share their views about whether or not they should be able to convert and there being a comment period related to it and that there, there's so much assets already tied to it that could be part of the ETF where it actually helps the end investor because of the discount that's there. That, I'm feeling that momentum um, and I'm also seeing it here at the conference. And again, that doesn't mean that because advisors and investors are interested in it doesn't mean that the regulators are going to say yes to it. But again, an agenda is done before we know all of what's going to be happening. But there's been a number of sessions where the, it's dedicated to it. There's, those sessions have been extremely well attended. Um, and as, as somebody who thought of Bitcoin off to the side in a niche thing that I'll worry about it when it becomes an ETF, and now we kind of have it with futures-based products, so I kind of understand it. I'm now feeling like I need to understand it enough <laughs> to be able to have informed conversations. I feel like you've come a long way on this. I think at one point you didn't think a spot Bitcoin ETF would be approved till like 2035. Yeah, well, I, I, it felt I'm, – I'm trying to read the regulatory tea leaves. I don't have skin in the game on this. I don't own uh, anything crypto-related. I don't – feel like it's appropriate for my portfolio, but it's certainly appropriate for many people's portfolios. And so it feels like the SEC was a never. Then they said yes to a futures-based, and now the door feels like it's starting to open. Yeah, I don't know that it is open. The Act, exactly. in Bitcoin futures. Okay, we're not going to rehash all the, the old Bitcoin <laughs> ETF arguments, but what I am going to do, we can have a nice friendly bet here. So I want you both on record. Oh, boy. When do you think a spot Bitcoin ETF will be approved, Dave? Uh, not in the Biden administration. Really? So we have a ways to go. Yeah. Todd? Oh, so if the over-under is, is, is the Biden administration, who, by the way, could win for another four years, it's possible, <laughs> could win for another four years. So if we're using, are you going to 2020, not till after 2024? Or are you using no, I think the tw- Biden I, I'm administration? being somewhat flip for I know. radio purposes, but 2024, I like, I had been in the camp of 2023 uh, for a while. And I know that like Balchunas is currently saying like mid-year 2023, I think that's, he's got a June date on the, on the book somewhere. <laughs> um, look, what Grayscale's doing in terms of highlighting the, the sort of disparity in how the SEC talks and then what they file, particularly around the approval of the Tucrium 33 Act product, the the SEC is backing themselves into a corner. Now, I don't think on merit a lawsuit against the SEC would win, but I do think that it's going to keep raising awareness of this until it becomes a little bit more of political pressure. I think it may have to come from a legislative position more than a regulatory position. It's not insane for me to think that the, the, the crypto regulation could be a part of the next election election cycle, because any topic where you can get Ted Cruz and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez agreeing on something, that's that's a, an amazing bridge right there. And there's people on both the left and the right that see the opportunities here. So I think when this becomes a hot button for a political situation, then we might get some movement. And even then, things won't move quickly, no. right? It takes a long time to get that regulatory framework in place. That said, I'm going to maintain some optimism. So if you're setting the, the date. It, well, he's it, got a January. Are you going with inauguration? 2024. I'll By take the, the end of 2024? I'll take the under on that one okay. also, which I can't believe I'm doing. <laughs> I've been more of the skeptic about this. It, just, it, it feels like this might be happening faster than I originally expected. And, well, sure. I like being on the other side of, of – of, I'm literally on I the other side. And I'm nervous being on any opposite end of a bet from Dave. That just yeah. feels like a bad place to be. But, okay. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. 
The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Let's move on. I want to get to yet another regulatory topic, something that has been, I would say, prevalent at this conference, ESG and ESG ETFs. Now, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that this has been a hot topic. My feeling is that there's been a more pessimistic tone, that maybe mm -hmm. ESG ETFs overall are losing a little bit of momentum. Um, I, I feel like advisors definitely have these products under more of a microscope. Clearly, regulators do as well. So the question that I want to pose to both of you and, and Todd, you can go first here. What is the end game for ESG ETFs? That if we go five years out, 10 years out, what will this segment of the ETF market look like? Oh, I, so I'm on the optimistic side of this. I, I think we're, we're seeing ESG versions of very popular products and from asset managers, whether it's uh, the triple Qs, there's an ESG version. There's obviously many, ver there's a couple of versions of the S&P 500 with EFIV and SNPE. Uh, DWS has mid cap and small cap versions of it. Um, it's likely that we're gonna see an expansion to other uh, investment styles in, in the near term uh, from them. We're seeing in fixed income, um, various flavors behind it. I actually think we're seeing a number of new products that have come to market. So. Some advisors are, are looking to have an ESG version of their model portfolios, and they'll now be able to do that. Um, whether or not there's sufficient demand, I, I don't but, know. But that's the question to me. So right. I agree with you that issuers are absolutely putting the products out on right. the market. Do advisors and investors really want these? So, well, I know your answer, even though you're an advisor uh, to it, but there are advisors that I know of and have talked to both at this conference and outside of this conference that run two different versions of their strategies yeah. because their end investors have come to them asking for it. I don't know that it's 50-50 for how they're doing it, but even if it's 90-10 for what they're doing, that as those investors get more comfortable with it, I think there's demand for it. I think five years from now, I don't know off the top of my head what the, what the pie is. Maybe Dave knows this of ESG as a percentage of overall assets. I think it will, it will be double or triple that uh, in, in five years. It's, it, it's small. And, right. and I, you know, I feel like I have been a very big ESG advocate over the years. I'm personally, I'm very interested in that. And I'm a big fan of people who are pushing the edge, like engine number one and what they're doing with vote. Like there are things out there I think are great that are getting developed and they're getting traction. However, I presented on Monday a chart that we did on advisor behavior around ESG, basically looking at how much research ESG ETF topics were getting. Uh, and frankly, it fell off a cliff in the beginning of last year. 2020 was a big year for research into that, sort of mid-pandemic. 2021, by the second quarter of 2021, the research volume had cut in half, and it's now cut in half again since then. So we had a blush of real interest in research I can tell you two stories about that. One is that maybe a lot of advisors and investors don't think it's that complicated and the products that are out there are meeting the needs when those needs arise in their conversations with clients. Or you could say people are throwing their hands up and they don't believe in it. 
I think we're headed for a world of a lot of fragmentation. I think you're going to see uh, advisory practices and investment managers that are quite specialized in ESG. Uh, you'll see larger groups, you know, a Carson, something like that. They're, they're obviously going to have solutions because they have so many advisors and so many clients that they need to be able to serve everyone. So there'll always be a sleeve or an option for it. Um, but I think the initial run of interest in ESG definitely has petered out. And now we're going to be in this sort of middle ground where we have to think about what we mean by it, how we classify it, and then there'll still be there'll be surviving products that add real value. But I think we're in this fragmentation and regrouping mode. But that I, I think we could use what happened with smart beta, um, which has people use different terms for it. But a couple of years ago, that's what the conferences were about, and and understanding. And there were some skeptics, but we, there was strong momentum. There's some very popular products that are out there, uh, value-oriented ETFs, momentum-oriented ETFs. Um, you know, I know iShares is, is trying to reinvigorate their multi-factor suite of products and cut the fees recently on those, on those ETFs. But it's been more of a steady state as opposed to the strong momentum, pun unintended, uh, for smart beta. ESG feels like that could be happening. There's going to be an audience for it but it isn't going to take over, um, and it certainly isn't going to be, in my opinion, ESG ETF inflows are not going to be causing the stock market moves. No. Uh, that, I don't think we're going to get anywhere close to that. Yeah, my hot take on this, I think thematic ESG ETFs, if you look at clean energy or you want to get into electric vehicles, I think those will always find an audience. Yeah. I personally think broad-based ESG ETFs are dead in the water, and I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, I think that if investors truly have those strong preferences, those ESG preferences, they're going to at some point turn to custom indexing yeah. or direct indexing. I think that is actually the better mousetrap mm -hmm. to reflect ESG preferences. The, the other thing, and I'm not some staunch, efficient market hypothesis guy. I mean, I, I believe overall the markets are efficient, but when it comes to ESG, I, I do think the markets handle this well. And I always use the example of something like Facebook. And let's say investors have an issue with Facebook's data privacy issues, okay? Or, or, or people have an issue with Facebook's data privacy issues. What will they do? They'll stop using Facebook. Facebook's revenue and earnings will go down, right? Ultimately, their stock market cap's going to shrink. There'll be a less, uh, you know, healthy position in an index. And point being, the financial markets are a natural ESG screener. But that's the long game. I mean, yeah. for, but it's always the long. Game. I know that. But right now, if you don't want to have meta platforms within your portfolio for the reasons that you said, because you think that might happen, you 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 have it if you own uh, you know SPY. You don't. I think you don't have it if you own EFIV. But, but what happens it, if if next week Facebook becomes the gold standard for data privacy? Well, then, what's the decision to add it back in? And so you get in, that's active management. You just get into going back and forth and somebody making a decision well, as to whether these companies are ESG. Let, I mean, that, this is part of why we're going to have this fragmentation, right? There's clearly a regulatory push to bring ESG to part of corporate governance, right? To heck with the EF, to ETFs and how we're building portfolios. Just Facebook as a company is going to have requirements not only about what it discloses, but how it actually runs itself. And if you want to be participating in, say, oh, I don't know, the $30 trillion pool of sovereign wealth funds that are now have SRI mandates, 
you're gonna have to play ball. So companies will make choices about whether they wanna play ball. Asset managers will make choices about whether they wanna include that in their methodologies. Um, but I think it's a little bit myopic to think that just because the United States may be in this mode of fragmentation and advisors may not be there, that it's not gonna matter, right? We're not the whole world. All right, I mean, it's your show, but if you're gonna call active management, can we talk about the tremendous momentum that we're seeing at this conference for active management is that is, yeah let's do it there, so that's certainly one of my takeaways okay. i think you know what kathy wood has been featured prominently here today i thought she did a fantastic job in both of the sessions that i saw um, i have felt in talking to etf issuers here that because of the market environment that we're in rising rates inflation i do feel like they're leveraging that in an attempt to uh, make the case for active I'll, I'll turn the question back on you which will be I think we would all agree that high octane, so, so highly concentrated strategies, differentiated strategies in the active space make sense. I, I, think, I think we all agree on something like mm -hmm. ARC, yeah. that can, you can make the case for that being in a, a portion of a portfolio. What about what I would call plain vanilla active? So I, I'm not gonna even call it closet indexing because I think that has sort of derogatory yeah. connotations. Just an active manager who is making some active bets, but it's not really that differentiated from the benchmark. Can that survive longer term? Well, I think it's. I think it is. I think it is surviving. So um, and and having success. So you're right, Kathy Wood. For those that are not here at this conference and not in the room with us right now, for it, Kathy Wood was on stage a couple of times. Uh, Brett Winter, who's uh, head of director of research, I had the opportunity to interview him on stage. Chris Davis was on stage of Davis Funds. We had Fidel, we had Holly Framstead of Capital Group. I'm, I'm, I don't want to name everybody that was on stage because <laughs> I could be here for a while for it. Um, but I, one of the ones that was on stage that uh, Dave knows as well, but Hamilton Reiner, who's, who runs JEPI, the JP Morgan uh, Equity Premium, that is stock picking with active, active stock picking, but also using options probably going back to our earlier segment that won't be allowed, I guess, uh, <laughs> if, if FINRA has its way for it. It's not, it's about two years old and it's billions of dollars that are invested in it. People are choosing that out of the gate because of its, of what it's doing, how it's delivering and the value add that's provided. So I think there's, look, you, if you price active management competitively, you offset some of those challenges that mutual funds have had and struggled with over the years. You still got to get the stock calls right. Yeah. Um, some of them are going to do so, some are not. But I think certainly at this conference we're hearing from advisors, they want something that's, that you come to a conference not to buy VU for three basis points. It's not worth getting on a plane to go into Florida for. I think there's demand for active equity ETFs. I think we're starting to see it. And yeah, I guess I'll choose the other. I have chosen the other side of that bet. I'm confident in that. I, I'm actually increasingly confident in active, but in use cases where it's appropriate, right? I think we've bifurcated the market now where sort of stuff that's under 25 basis points and looks like cheap beta, that's a market. And then stuff that's over 25 basis points that's solving a problem, that's a market. And some of those problems are solved by smart beta and some of them are solved by thematic indexes. But you know what? Active management shortcuts both of those. Now, you may not believe in it. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not trying to sell every active manager is going to outperform or anything like that. But one of the ways you solve a problem is by putting a smart person on top of it and giving them the freedom to do it. So I think Hamilton's a great example with Jeppy. It's a guy who's been doing this for, I don't know, you know, longer than I've been in this business and has a great track record of generating income when other people can't find it in the equity market. So I think there are pockets out there where it's not that this guy is going to pick the best stocks. It's that they're solving a real problem that advisors have. Okay, so we've talked 
FINRA proposal. We've talked Bitcoin ETFs, ESG, actively managed ETFs now. I mentioned the active ETFs coming uh, more to the forefront because of rising rates and inflation. Let's talk more about rising rates and inflation, and in particular, the fixed income challenge. I might say out of any topic this week, that has been the, the biggest topic, is how do you solve for the fixed income uh, in your portfolio? And I feel like over the past year or two, there has been a lot of talk about the death of the 60-40 portfolio. We've all heard that. But you look at the way that this year started, and we saw a little bit about why that discussion has been out there with both stocks and bonds going down. And in, in some cases, depending upon what you own, bonds down more than the broader equity market. <laughs> 16% in the long now, run. Now, yeah. here, here is my concern around all this. We're seeing ETF issuers, we go, you go walk around the exhibit hall, we're seeing ETF issuers res, res, respond with all sorts of solutions here um, to this problem. It could be dividend-based strategies. It could be options-based strategies, commodities, alts. Interest rate futures, yeah. yeah all all yeah. of it. So my fear is that advisors and investors are now perhaps shunning bonds in their portfolio, and maybe they're going, whatever, 70-30 instead of 60-40, but that extra 10 is going into option strategies or alts, and they don't fully understand the risk. You and I talked about this right. a couple of weeks ago. Dividend stocks are not bonds. Yeah. Right. doesn't mean they're not good in a portfolio, but they have different risk profiles. So does that concern either of you at all, that there is a lot of focus here on these solutions, and they're coming to market, they're being they're being pushed in front of advisors and investors, but they may those investors may not fully understand the ramifications of getting rid of bonds in their portfolio and putting these strategies in. Absolutely. I think it is it's something that's very worth having some some discussion about. Um, you know, the example of dividend stocks, I mean we we put up some charts earlier in the conference, you know, just absolutely on fire, both in terms of research, in terms of flows. Uh, it's you know the, in the last three months for every single dollar that came out of junk bonds, a dollar went into dividend strategies, almost dollar for dollar, and a lot of those dollars. So it's clear that the market as a whole is doing that kind of reallocation into dividends as the solution. And you're right, a very different kind of beta. Um, I, I do worry that these are less understood trade-offs, um, and I would hope that financial advisors are making smart ones. I think there are some really clever and worth talking about solutions there. Um, you know, certainly what Wisdom Tree's done with NTSX to try to sort of generate capital efficiency, create room in your portfolio in order to get alternatives, to sort of balance out some of your loss of what you were hoping to get out of bond diversification, or, you know, any number of more options-based strategies or future-based strategies that are deliberately going to try to go up when interest rates go up to like futures-based strategies. There's a lot out there, but you're right. These are, I mean, back to complex products. These are complex products for the most part. There are solutions, but they require more due diligence. Yeah, so I, that's happening. Certainly the alternatives, the dividend strategies, where, although if you're, if you're swapping out your high-yield bond for your, your dividend stability oriented ETF or your dividend growth ETFs, you might actually be improving you might your be risk better. profile yeah. <laughs> than, than losing out on it. Um, what we thought, I, you know, I think it's interesting also is, is our, our colleague Laura Krieger presented uh, earlier in, in the week um, talking about a fixed income playbook and do you shorten your duration? Do you look at floating rate investment grade oriented ETFs so that you can be able to still have fixed income but have more of that protection giving a rising rate environment? That is the more, to me, more prudent way of doing it, but also that's going to be a lower return, you know, given how low bond yields are. So 
hopefully people are making the informed decisions. Well, the other thing that I think we have to mention here is that even though we can all look at the environment and go, yes, it looks like rates are going to rise. Yes, we have significant inflation, 40-year highs. We don't know exactly what's going to happen moving forward. And it is possible, I'm just saying, it's possible that rates come back in and in inflation comes back down, right? And so if Well, it, if eventually. It, I mean, a long enough well, time sure. scale, we're all dead. So. But, but economists can't even predict, predict this. No, with, no they're going to sort of accuracy. They're, they're going to get it wrong. They're yeah. going to get it <laughs> The one thing yeah. we can say with confidence is the market call on the number of rate hikes will be wrong. <laughs> will it be more or less? I don't know, but it will be wrong. But that's the over-under you're willing to take. Yes. You're, you'll collar that trade. <laughs> I will collar that trade, yes. Okay, I want to get to one more topic that struck me this week. And, and Dave, you were part of the reason for this. So we started this podcast just talking about the overall health of the ETF industry, $7 trillion, $200 billion in inflow so far this year. And we know that if you look at flows – the vast majority still continue to go into the cheapest beta mm -hmm. ETFs, iShares, Vanguard, State Street. And I feel like the chatter around this conference has been more about the potential negative ramifications of that, which is interesting to me because in past conferences, I do feel like it's been much more of a, uh, an index cheerleading feel. Right. But I feel like now there's more discussion around potential uh, negatives. And again, in the presentation that you did on Monday, you said that proxy voting is uh, going to be a key issue moving forward, obviously because the larger issuers own bigger chunks of, of company shares. Um, I've also heard discussion around indexing, creating fatter tails in the markets, more significant swings in stocks. Are we going to continue to hear more of this? You, you know, were some of the index fear mongers over the past decade right at the end of the day? I, I would say right is the wrong answer. Uh, what we've discovered is that certain aspects of the flows-driven market that we live in right now uh, are in perturbing the markets, right? So target date funds probably being the one that's getting the most academic research right now, really predictable flows on rebalances because it's really easy to figure out where the bubble is and whether everybody's rolling in from their 70% bond exposure to their 80% bond exposure as they're heading into retirement. These are all knowable in advance. You can see the assets. You know when the rebalances are going to happen. You can't argue that that has zero impact. It's a known set of flows. The question is, what is that impact? And is there something we should do about it? I tend to not want to be in the camp of saying, oh, hand-wringing, hand-wringing, we should ban indexing? I mean, what, like, how do you ban an idea? Clearly, the market has rewarded a systematic approach to getting cheap exposure. So if that's going to cause problems, mostly what we need to understand is how and why. And I think we're still at the very early stages of understanding the how and why. I think it's something we should all be part of the conversation on. I don't think there's much point in you know, just throwing up your hands and saying, no, it could never possibly be anything. There are things where indexing can cause perturbances in the market. I think the smart question is, how does that change the capital asset pricing model? Not, does it mean we should ban indexing? Yeah, I'll just do real quick on it. Um, what's interesting is, you could see that Vanguard has is, is been gaining share, not one because relative to iShares, but also versus the broader industry. But it's not Vanguard total stock market alone or Vanguard 500. It's also Vanguard total bond. It's Vanguard total international bond. Those are, well, in those cases, three, covering three different parts of the marketplace. So in totality, that's a lot of money that's going into those products and it's going into Vanguard but it's not impacting one another, oh, the international one. You, we've got lots of different ways for investors to get their indexing, 
but they're not indexing the exact same index, thus buying the same stocks, thus impacting the overall market. I've always been confused why firms are getting too big. They're not owning the same securities across the board. Yeah, and that's not where the academic research would suggest we should be looking, right? It's not that the Vanguard ETF is the issue. It's frankly more around the derivatives complex around some of these indexes, right? Options expirations. That's where things start to get interesting, right? And we've seen vol pinning around OPEX. That's a thing that you can observe. It's not, you can't argue against it. It happens. We all learned about gamma squeezes because of GameStop, right? So those are real things we should talk about. Those are real market structure issues, they're tangential to the question of ETFs. Yeah, I still think the first thing that's going to really manifest itself here around indexing is the proxy voting. Now, I think technology can solve a lot of the concerns here, and that's probably a conversation for a different time, but we're already hearing a lot about that. I think mm -hmm. about the late Jack Vogel before he passed away, the op-ed that he had in the Wall Street Journal. He said that was his biggest concern. Mm -hmm. So here you have the father of indexing stating that as a, a key consideration, and I think that's where we're going to see the conversation yep. moving forward. Okay, before we get to our special guest, I want to give you the opportunity. Any other key takeaways from the conference? Anything that we haven't covered yet here today? I think we've been pretty comprehensive. Anything that either of you saw this week? I, I just think it's great to see so many new players on the field. Uh, you know, you walk through that massive exhibit hall, marketplace, sorry, we're calling it, um, and it's packed, not just with people, but with new firms that are launching new stuff. And some of it's the old line active managers getting into the space, Capital Group, T. Rowe Price, folks like that, coming out to show their wares and really explain what they're doing. But it's just an endless you know, parade of new ideas. I think we're in one of the most vigorous parts of the market I can remember. ETFs are still the Silicon Valley of asset management. 100%. Even though the industry's matured, still the incubator. Yeah, I just think what's exciting is the number of people who want to talk about ETFs and have, I'm sure stopped Dave as well, uh, as well as our guests who I won't, I won't out, I'll let you be able to uh, call him or her out on, onto the stage for it. But people who have stopped me to be able to ask actual questions about what would be a good ETF for this? What would be a good ETF for that? And I guess if you come to a conference, you're prepared to be able to do that, but I'm just excited that people are doing that again. Did and you have a good answer for all those questions? Well, depending upon what the topic was, sometimes yes, but I can't give <laughs> investment advice. Uh, unlike yourself, I, I'm not I'm not able to do that. And, and it's easier for you. You don't have the regulatory burden that's, that I do. That's true. You should provide it. <laughs> I guess that's, I guess that's true. And we, we started with regulation. Let's end our segment with regulation too. All right. We only have a few minutes left. I do want to welcome in a very special guest, John Swolfs, co-founder of Advisor Circle. I would say the man of the hour, really the man of the week. He and his team have helped put on this uh, this wonderful event together. John, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. And I want to add to that. It's not just myself or my team. It was two combined organizations coming together to put on this massive event. So a lot of kudos goes out to, to Tom, Tom, Dave, and the team that they've built over at Trends and Database as well. Okay, so on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most tired, how tired are you right now? Uh, I'm probably about an eight. Uh, ask me after the uh, session with Michael Strahan, and I'll probably be about a 11, 12 then after the adrenaline is worn off. <laughs> yeah, he drew the short straw of getting to sit on stage with Michael Strahan and talk football and life and leadership and, and, and all that. Tough um, gig. It Tough is, gig. Somebody, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah. I'm willing to step up for the team and, and, and you know sit down with Michael for a half hour and ask him a few questions. So obviously this is the inaugural exchange conference. I'm curious, what are you leaving with this week? Seeing everybody back together, I mean, what, what have you seen out of the industry? 
there's still great energy in this industry. As we said, it's matured, but I, but I don't think it's getting older. I think it's just getting smarter, hipper, wiser. Um, so I was really impressed with the, the energy. You know, Dave mentioned before, the, the new players. That, to me, is really exciting to see that we're just kind of starting that next level of innovation within the ETF industry that's, that's been missing from a, a standpoint to get together for two years. But over those two years, while we've been gone, so much has happened, and it's great to just sort of see it come to light and, and so many people excited about it. We talked a little bit earlier about how even though this is technically an ETF conference, it feels broader now because ETFs have really moved mainstream. They're not some niche investment anymore. People get the benefits of the ETF wrapper. Do you feel that at all? I, I said this feels much more just like a broader asset management conference, which I think is good. Do, do you see that at all? Yeah, but I also think, you know, as the ETF industry has matured, you, you see folks using more bond products. You now see active in that space. There's more reason to talk about bigger, broader things. Before, it was an ETF was the best solution for this because it was low-cost, transparent, and you shouldn't do active. Now what we're seeing is the wrapper of the ETF is the real innovation there, and that's what's most exciting about this industry is that the wrapper is allowing these active managers to, to have an opportunity to go back in and start adding some value. Uh, you guys mentioned the, the product from, from JP Morgan. I mean, that's a perfect example uh, of how ETFs are, are becoming more broad-based and, and being able to use across different asset classes. And then you just can't go anywhere without talking crypto right now. So, of course, that was covered, and that's going to make it feel uh, like a bigger, broader conference as well. Somebody told me this felt like a hybrid uh, crypto conference, crypto and ETF conference. And, and I was actually a little worried about that, to be honest. I saw how many, and then you go in, and every one of those darn rooms was full. So I guess people aren't tired of it yet. I don't like, think that's and there a, a bad lot, thing. No, yeah. I think there are, a lot, there are a lot of angles to discuss, and obviously you can't be in every panel. So I like that we hit the topic multiple times. But any concerns I had that we had misread the room and that advisors were not interested in crypto, I was, I was forget what, about it. What was a survey earlier this week, I think, from NASDAQ, where they had a stat, I want to say it was 98% of advisors had an interest in learning more about crypto. So there you go. Yeah. And, and I think advisors using ETFs clearly probably have an interest in crypto as well. I would say more forward thinking, but uh, again, it's all mainstream. Hence now, your t-shirt saying, will why be mainstream. still no Bitcoin ETF? I, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but to that, that point, there, there's a lot to, to unpack and talk about from crypto. So it wasn't, you know, every session sort of invest, invest, Bitcoin, invest. Bitcoin, Bitcoin, right. Yeah, it was yeah. like... Uh, you know, Michael uh, from Grayscale started talking out more about the, the kind of history, the regulation, where it's going. Uh, Rick Edelman has talked about how to talk to your clients about it. There were sessions about how to access it. There were sessions about what it is. So you could kind of go across the whole platform and sort of learn where it's come from, where it's going, how to invest in it, and how to talk to your clients about it. So there's so much to cover that you need multiple sessions to be able to deliver all the messaging that needs to happen in order for advisors to start putting that into clients' portfolios in a real meaningful way. But I think, interestingly, we all those conversations were about crypto as an asset class, not yes. like, oh, we should be investing in Dogecoin. Like it, they weren't, it wasn't going through project by project and utility by utility. It was, how do we think about this as an investment opportunity, which is part of why I think it worked. Yeah, you're talking about the Bitcoin conference last week. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Miami. That's the one with, like, <laughs> Polygon. Yeah. Well, uh, John, look, I think the social media team for Exchange has done a tremendous job this week, and there may be people out there listening who have significant fear of missing out from this conference. They did not have an opportunity to attend this week. Tell us about the future plan. So can we expect to be back here next year? Uh, I'm assuming you already are starting to plan uh, ahead before you even get, get the rest from this conference. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, we're back here next February, February uh, 5th through the 8th uh, here in the, the Fountain Blue. So uh, registration will probably open up in a few weeks. But yes, planning's already begun. 
Uh, we're doing what we need to do to make sure that it's bigger, better, um, and even more hipper next year. And then I also wanted to ask you about Future Proof just briefly. So this is a conference that you're putting on in September, I believe, along with the Ritholtz team. Yes. Just tell us a little bit about that conference and what's on the agenda there. Yeah, well, well, first of all, Nate, it's not a conference, it's a festival. So if we could have you start using the, the proper uh, terms. No, just, just kidding. So uh, Future Proof is, is a wealth festival, though. Um, and what we want to do is we just want to elevate the next level uh, of how the industry gathers. It, it's an event built around the wealth ecosystem. It's an event built for advisors. We're going to cover on what we think are the four pillars most impacting uh, the, the wealth ecosystem at that time, and that's um, money. So that's your, your investments. Culture, it's cool to talk finance now. We see that obviously with crypto, NFTs, that sort of stuff. Um, obviously impact, we wanna have an impact um, going forward and that's you know um, diversity, inclusion, equitability, all of those sort of things. And then obviously you, it's really hard to have a conference nowadays if you're not talking technology. And we're not just talking advisor technology, we're gonna have big mega uh, trends talking about technology. And we think those are the four things that are gonna drive the the, the, the future of finance and making sure advisors stay relevant is our goal to keep them educated. But we're going to have some fun along the way. So everything is built outside in a parking lot uh, right next to the beach. I know that might sound weird to be in a parking lot, uh, but it won't look and feel like a parking lot. It's in Huntington Beach, California. So it's a citywide event, truly immersive. And we're really excited. It's September 11th through the 14th. Um, and it will be the next big event for, for advisors in 2022. So, John, um, and I think listeners may know, I just recently joined ETF Trends and ETF Database, so I was not part of the planning of the conference. I just showed up and then ended up being a part of the team, uh, and thank you for having me and welcoming me to the team. But what's notable to me about the difference between this and other industry ETF conferences is actually the limited number of sessions that gave people a chance to go to and hit the mainstream things. In the past, there would often be four or five different breakout rooms taking place at the same time, and you had to try to plan your schedule around that. When you guys were putting together the conference, it feels like it was uh, an approach to make sure we hit broad topics to, to cover the, make sure advisors had the broad field as opposed to getting into the nitty gritty and the niche behind it. Am, am I, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we wanted to, to do away with, with um too many panels to, to begin with, but we also took a lot of our feedback from advisors, letting us know what they want when they go to an event. They want choice, but to your point, they don't want to have to choose between six or seven things, because then it actually feels like you're missing out on stuff. We thought by creating you know, a couple different formats, something like this, where you can have a live uh, podcast, is a different format. So we wanted to give them choice, but not overburden them with choice, um, and it was a direct and conscious decision to make sure that they were big, broad topics that would appeal to most. And if you want to get into the niche, that's why all the experts are down here. Go find them and ask those questions um, and dig into the weeds with the experts. Well, John, I know we still have a little bit of time left in the conference, but let me be the first to congratulate you on a very successful event. I've greatly enjoyed it. Uh, I, I, again, I just think a huge success. So thank you. And thank you for joining me on the podcast this week. Oh, thank you for having me. And, and again, thank you to everyone that came out and came down to uh, Exchange. We're really excited to see everybody and can't wait to do it bigger and better next year. Dave, Todd, always a pleasure having no. you on the podcast. It's fun. I wish I wish if everyone could see. Dave's been doing a Rubik's Cube with one hand. <laughs> Is it solved while, yet? While, yeah, he solved it three or four. I'm sitting across from him. Sorry. He Dirt solved it three or four different times and then unsolved it, and I can't solve it at all. So I it just proves this. I apologize the, if it's a distraction. No, 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 not a distraction. <laughs> it just proves that he's a great multitasker. Well, thank you both for joining me. Really enjoyed this. Thanks for having us. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Direction. If you would like to learn more about Direction ETFs, you can visit www.direction.com. 
Next week, I will be back in studio with two more excellent guests. I'll be joined by David Miller, co-founder and CIO of Strategy Shares. He's going to talk about their ETF lineup, which includes the NASDAQ 7-handle index ETF. And then next week, get this, is also 420, April 20th. <laughs> so you know that means I'm talking <laughs> cannabis. I'll be joined by Morgan Paxia, co-founder and managing director of Poseidon. They're behind the advisor shares Poseidon Dynamic Cannabis ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.